You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. One of you called my attention to an old episode of The Twilight Zone a little while ago. It aired in 1960. It was called A Nice Place to Visit. It's about a man who got everything that he wanted. He called himself Rocky because that hadn't been the way his life was. The narrator tells us his life had been rocky and perilous and an uphill at a dead run all the way. At the beginning of the episode, Rocky is just exhausted, kind of beat up by life, and he actually dies. But um, as oftentimes comes in Twilight Zone, there's a guy in a white suit who steps up from the another world and invites Rocky to stand up. And, and uh, this man in the white suit's name is Pip. He's his guide. And he takes him to a place that Rocky can only assume is heaven because he gets everything he wants. Uh, nice clothes, beautiful apartment, women. Uh, he play, he loves to gamble and every time, every game he plays, he wins. And it's fantastic at first. But after a little while, it begins to get boring and then oppressive. And he begs for mercy. He comes to Pip and he says, I never thought I'd get bored with beautiful dames. But look, look. I wouldn't expect an angel to understand this. See, but, but, but being a guy with a chick, it don't mean anything if it's all set up in advance. And I mean, everything is great here. You see, really great. It's just the way I always imagine, except that, just between you and me, Fats, I don't think I belong here. I don't think I fit in. And Pip, who is a little portly, says, oh, nonsense. Of course you do. No, no, I mean it. Somebody must have goofed. If I got to stay here another day, I'm going to go nuts. Look. Look, I don't belong in heaven, see? I want to go to the other place. And the man in the suit looks puzzled. He says, heaven? Whatever gave you the idea that you were in heaven, Mr. Valentine? This is the other place. <laughs> Cue the maniacal laughter, right? <laughs> this week I read a sentence that stopped me short. And I don't know if you'll think it's important, but it caught my attention. Let me read it to you. Richard Foster, in a book called Celebration of Discipline, writes this one sentence. Our happiness is not dependent upon getting what we want. Let me read that again. Our happiness is not dependent on getting what we want. I think that caught me short because I think my definition of happiness is getting what I want. So how could that be possible? And yet, I, I think I agree with it. I'm seeing some of your heads nod like, yeah, I think I, I think I agree with that also. But how, how, how? A few weeks ago, I was uh, not getting what I wanted in a very small way. I was on a red light, and I was waiting. I was on my bike, leaning against the post, uh, the actual post of the red light, and I'm sitting there watching the cars go by, and I'm starting to get impatient, and I'm getting kind of in a bad mood, like I'm ready to go, but uh, the world's not ready to let me go. It's the red light, and I'm not getting what I want. And at that red light, I started to go a little bit deeper and think about all the bad moods in my life, and you know, and they, and they come. And I think about how often I'm in a bad mood because I didn't get what I wanted. Like maybe that day. It was not a day that I wanted. Or maybe that relationship. And it's not the relationship that I wanted. 
Or maybe the thing at work, that the project, it's not the project that I, I, I wanted. And I think about how I can be unhappy because my circumstances do not yield to my desires. And I think, do I really want to give my circumstances that much power over my life? And then I thought, because I mean, that's outsourcing your happiness, isn't it? Do you, do you want others to have control over whether you're happy or not? I, I know I don't. And then I begin to think about when I am unhappy because I'm not getting what I want, how often I want to change the situation. Like I look at that red light and I think, it's time to be green. And, and whether it's that day or that relationship or that work project, I think, I just want to change it. I just want to make it stop because it's not giving me what I want. And I'm sure that something else will that moment, I stopped. I thought, I'm on to something here, something uh, within me that I need to pay attention to, this insatiable appetite to please myself. And I actually, am, you'll think this is weird, but I pulled out my phone and I dictated a little note into a journal that I'm trying to pay more attention to my life. And so here's what, I'm going to read to you what I wrote in my journal. I said, I said this, everybody seems to be looking for someplace else or something else How can I be a guy who's not looking for something else, but who is simply looking to be satisfied with where I am and what I have and who I am? Wouldn't that be bigger? You know, to quit thinking, if I just got the other job, if I just started dating the other person or whatever, I'd be happy. I I believe it's possible for you and me to find happiness right here, right now, in the midst of whatever crisis, trauma, or pain we're in. Happiness is within reach because happiness doesn't come from getting what you want. Well, if you ask yourself, how could I live with that perspective? How could that kind of contentment be more frequently my possession? I want to take you to a text of scripture this morning that offers you a spiritual practice. It's a very simple practice, but it's one most of us are not at all interested in in uh, in Western Christendom. It's one of the one another verses. And uh, if you're just joining us, uh, you're jumping into a series here, we're glad you're with us. Uh, We're looking at the one another passages in the New Testament. There are um, hundreds of, a hundred times this word alelone, one another, is used. So they give us insight into what we can get uh, that we can't get alone. What God wants to give us that he can only give us in the context of Christian community. And the text for t- today is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. So if you're looking at the Pew Bible, open up please to page 952, or, uh, or just turn your own Bible up to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Um, and if you're able, will you stand with me? Let's read this verse aloud together as God's people. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Here's what I think that means. Put your wants under the wants of somebody else. It's that simple. I'm going to talk for a number of more minutes, <laughs> but but uh, that's just because I get paid by the word. Uh, you, you, 
if you want that kind of contentment that I think I, you know, I was talking about before, I, we need to learn to put our wants under the wants of someone else. That's a word picture that's created for me by the actual word here that's translated be subject. If you're looking at other translations, you might have the word submit. And both of those words are good translations of the word hupo, uh, hupotasso. And, if, and you may remember from some of Earl Palmer's teaching, uh, the meaning of the word hupo, it's just a preposition meaning under, hupo, under. Tasso means to, to arrange or to order, to set, to place. So when Paul says, be subject to one another in the reverence of Christ, he's saying, put under. Put your wants under one another's wants. Set it under. Now, if we do that, I want to suggest to you, and I want to talk about two outcomes that will come from that. First of all, there will be a kind of a contentment because if you do that, you'll learn and you'll experience what God wants for others. The other contentment comes when you learn and experience what God wants for yourself. Both of those experiences will require this practice to be uh, subject or to submit. Now, I have to just pause before some of you uh, actually do what you want to do at this point, which is get out of the room as quickly as possible because the preacher is talking about submission. And I'm going to just tell you, we don't talk about submission because we don't like, I don't even like the word. I don't like the word, actually. Um, and there are two reasons for that. And let me just start with one, and, and this will help me get at wanting what God wants for others. The word submission feels to me socially regressive. Because, because look, let's be honest, uh, submission is dangerous. And, we, you know, and in a world where people go around telling other people to submit is a world that just stays the same with all of its cultural oppressions and dehumanizations. People are just submitting to the order as it is. And, and there's a way of thinking about the word submit, and people have used that to kind of just, just confirms people in powerless, dehumanizing situations. It feels socially regressive. So a man and a woman went to a Bible conference. Uh, the, the teacher talked about this passage and the passage to follow, and he got all interested in it, and he thought, wow, this is interesting. The wife is supposed to submit to me. And so he's, when they got home, he said, this, you know what? I, this is going to be the way it's going to be in our home, actually. Now I'm going to be the head, and you are going to submit to me. Well, for the next couple of weeks, he didn't see his wife. Uh, actually, just about two weeks later, he started to see her just a bit, but out of one eye. Power is, is corrosive, and we tend to abuse it. So we get nervous, and we should get nervous when we see this word in the scriptures. And actually, if you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 5 and the first nine verses of chapter 9, you see that Paul does apply this language now to social situations in a traditional society. And I want to talk about that for a minute, because this is very much misunderstood, and it's so dangerous what it is. Paul gives here in his letter what's called a household code. 
And there are several of these, three of these in the New Testament. But what you need to understand about household codes is it's a form of literature that the Bible did not invent. The household code was invented by the Greeks. And for them, it was a way of maintaining and defining the status quo. They said, we believe in a well-ordered society, and here is how the gods have ordered it. And they had a household code. Let me give an example of one from Aristotle. It goes all the way back to Aristotle. And if you hear Aristotle's words, um, and you know anything about the New Testament household codes, you're going to see how dramatically different Aristotle's household code was from Paul's. Because Paul really intends to give a new household code that's very, very different. And so here's what Aristotle says in his work, Politics. The male is by nature superior and the female inferior by nature. And the one rules and the other is ruled. This principle of necessity extends to all mankind. He says of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. By the way, same three categories Paul touches on. Although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. Just as the older and full-grown is by nature superior to the younger and more immature. And all classes must be deemed to have their special attributes. I read this excerpted because I couldn't tolerate to read to you the instructions that he gives for the maintenance of social order through submission. But what you notice when you read Paul's household code is while he treats those same subjects in the same order, his idea of submission is very different. It's a mutual submission. Don't ever forget the headline here in verse 21. Here Paul begins by saying, be subject to one another. By the way, in verse 22, in our translations where it says, wives be subject, just as a little freebie here, there's actually no verb in there. It doesn't even say wives be subject in the Greek. It just draws the verb by implication from verse 21. So don't ever try and tell your wife to be subject if you don't first read verse 21 because you've got no verb without seeing that you yourself are, are being called to be subject to her before she's being called to be subject to you. So what Paul is doing is he's now norming a countercultural community to the implications of Jesus' presence in their midst, now calling everybody to an equal experience of mutual submission. This is radical. Reading this and missing that is like watching the Colbert Report thinking you're signing up for the Tea Party. I mean, this is, this is social criticism that the Apostle Paul is going. He's, he's, he's ripping off the Greek form of, of, of moral reasoning, and he's saying what happens to your formulation for a healthy society gets turned on its head when Jesus Christ encounters it, and this is what it looks like. It looks like a world in which husbands uh, do not are not superior to their wives. In fact, they pour out their lives as Christ loved the church. They give their lives to their wives. It looks like a world in which parents uh, do not rule over their children, but actually nurture them as co-members of the community in Christ. And, and, and masters don't actually own their slaves, but they are called, the masters are called to serve the slave in this one another kingdom of mutual submission. 
So I, I, what I'm saying is, even though you and I feel it, it's socially regressive to talk this way, when you understand in its cultural context, what you discover is, <laughs> this is, this is actually very, very subversive. And when you and I participate in a community like this, we join the revolution, the social revolution of Jesus Christ in the world. We become radical. We want what God wants for others. And there's a little bit of satisfaction that comes from that. Let me just give you a little illustration of how this worked in the early church. Just bear with me for a second. This is a little bit geekish. But uh, Rodney Stark was a professor of sociology at University of Washington, wrote a great book called um, The Rise of Christianity. I recommend it to you. It's a short book, a good book. And in it, he, he evaluates the factors that led to the explosive growth of this movement, followers of Jesus Christ. You know, 12 guys, when Jesus was around to Constantine, A.D. 312, it's a tenth of the Roman Empire, more than six million followers. And everybody thought there must be coercion or forced, uh, forced baptisms to account for that huge spread. Stark argues no. He said there were several factors. And one of the factors was the way that followers of Jesus cared for one another. They didn't have anything like that in the Roman Empire at that time. Stark points out that there were two epidemics in 165 and in 260 that wiped out large sections of the Roman Empire. In fact, in the first epidemic, between a quarter and a third of the population died, the Roman Empire. And he said, it turns out by modern medical research has shown us that in an epidemic like they had at that time, basic medical care, just water and food, and, you know, being by someone's bed without any modern medicine could actually reduce mortality from 30% to 10%. And what we know from historical sources is that the Romans, who were not followers of Jesus, ran from the sick and dying, but the followers of Jesus ran toward to care for their own and and. and for their neighbors. They ministered basic food and water, rest, clean clothes. And so he says, look, let me just crunch the numbers, and I won't do it with you, but if you crunch the numbers he's working with there, you take a hypothetical city between 165 and 260 that goes through both of those plagues. At the beginning of that time period, the ratio of Christian to non-Christian is one Christian to 249 Christians, uh, non-Christians, apply the mortality rates and other growth quotients, etc. And by the end of that period, you have one Christian to every four non-Christians. One to four! Why? It wasn't evangelism. It was just caring for each other. Wow. Now we're talking about revolution. So this is very socially destabilizing, actually, in a really wonderful way. We find out that when we care for one another, we participate in the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what Apostle Paul is saying. And that's the argument of the whole letter. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, very quickly, I think it's the key verse for the whole chapter. Most theologians, commentators recognize that. Chapter 1, verse 10, describes what God the Father is doing through Jesus Christ in the entire cosmos, and he's reordering it. And here's my translation of that verse for what it's worth. The father of all is putting the household of all under one head in Jesus. He uses the word household. That's why it's another reason why it's really interesting that he has a household code in chapter 5. Because Jesus is organizing everything as, as though he were a household steward under the love of the father of all. And we can participate in that when we say to one another, as Jesus says to his father, not my will, but, but thine be done. 
And that's what it means to be subject. Not my will, but thine be done. Put your wants under the wants of somebody else. So when we want, when we do this, we end up wanting what God wants for others. We end up wanting this, and you don't always see it, but change in people's lives, change in society. But secondly, I want to suggest that that there's contentment that comes from that. There's also contentment that comes from wanting what God wants for you. Yes, there is something for you and for me in this practice of submission. And again, here's a second reason why we don't like the word submit, not just because it feels socially regressive to us, but it also feels personally threatening. Boy, I have to give up something that I want. How can I do that? Because I really want what I want, and happiness is getting what you want, and we all know that, right? And Paul says, no. There's something more than what you want. Now, how can it be more getting more than what I want? Well, it's, it's finding our happiness in God. After all, James chapter 4, verse 7 says this, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now, that's why we're here in church this morning, isn't it? To submit ourselves to God. Because when we put our wants under God's wants, we put a small desire under a great desire. See, the one who gave his life for you, Jesus Christ, wants more for you than you can ever want for yourself. And so it's safe to submit yourself, to put your wants under his want. And here, by the way, if you're looking at James, it's very interesting. I don't have time to discuss it with you, but James is having the same conversation we're having. He's saying, I know that there are desires in you. I know that there are wants in you. And when you don't satisfy them, sometimes you, this is a cause for problems among you. And then he says this thing, well, submit yourself to God. Give your wants to his wants. And, um, and, and, and here's the reason he gives. He says, because God gives grace to the, to the humble. What God wants to give you is grace. And sometimes we're so full of ourselves, there's no room for God's grace. See? So this is really a gospel practice to submit yourselves to one another. It's making room in your life for God's grace. That's, that's where contentment happens in the middle of things. So I, I guess what I would suggest to you is that mutual submission is, is training in spiritual submission. We practice with one another because I don't always know what it means to, to submit myself to God because I can't see God, but I can see you. And you give me an opportunity to curb my will and open up space in my life for grace. I don't know if any of you are watching this show, uh, the Sherlock, the PBS version of Sherlock. I have been won over to this show. I was very resistant. My teenage daughter made me sit through several episodes, and there aren't that many episodes, but now I'm sold on. I'm really interested, I have to admit, in this program. And there have been three seasons and nine episodes, and just three seasons or three episodes in January. Well, here's what's interesting about this show. It's Sherlock Holmes set in modern London. It's a story of two narcissists, Right? Sherlock and Moriarty are flaming narcissists. And that's, they're really interesting uh, because of that. But there is a difference between Sherlock and Moriarty, who's the bad guy. And the difference isn't their narcissism. The difference is what they do with their narcissism. Because Sherlock Holmes describes himself as a uh, sociopath who solves crimes as an alternative to getting high. You know, he has a drug problem because life is hard. And it is hard. It's hard for him. And so he says, I solve crimes uh, as a substitute for doing heroin. But, in fact, I don't believe that. 
as I've watched the show, I believe that uh, what he does as a substitute for heroin is put his wants under the wants of Watson, his friend. Because that's what we're seeing. If you've seen, if you've seen the last two episodes, very interestingly, and I won't spoil it for the rest of you, is that, that Sherlock Holmes gives himself away to Watson, which is very surprising for a narcissist to do. But I think Sherlock is opening up to grace. And we can too, and we need to. There's a lot that's been written about this, but many commentators say we have an epidemic of narcissism in America right now. That is, you and I tend to believe everything is just about us. Gene Twenge in Generation Me, it's a book subtitled Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever. It's because we're narcissists. She says a survey done 37,000 college students from the 1980s until now found that narcissistic personality traits have risen just as quickly as obesity. It's not just kids. Sherry Turkle, in her great book, Alone Together, she's an MIT prof. She tells us in her book and a New York Times article about a man named Wesley who was hopeless, who characterizes himself as hopelessly selfish. He didn't have help, hope for himself because he's so self- selfish. He says this, I've been divorced three times and he doesn't, he doesn't trust himself with women anymore. And so what he says in an interview with Sherry Turkle is, I'd really like to have a female robot. Uh, I'd want from the robot a lot of what I want from a woman, but I think the robot would give me more in some ways. With a woman, there are her needs to consider. <laughs> See, well, good for you, Wesley. <laughs> you know, uh, a robot, he says, could take some of the pressure off and I could stay in my comfort zone. Well, yeah, if you want to live in your comfort zone, Wesley, you could stay there. But Jesus offers you more. So much more. Then Turkle says, we expect more from technology and less from one another and seem increasingly drawn to technologies that provide the illusion of companionship without the demands of relationship. Think about it. The illusion of companionship without the demands of relationship. And we are so lonely. Because this is where it goes when it's all about me. I can't tell you how liberating now this practice of being subject to somebody else actually is. It's not oppressive. It's not a threat. It's actually an opening into great freedom. George Viant was the uh, scholar who led the Grant Harvard Project. 268 men 75 years ago at Harvard University were studied in the longest longitudinal study, uh, one of the longest longitudinal studies of human development ever launched. And he just resurfaced recently George Viant, to tell Atlantic Magazine and um, a number of other uh, blogs, uh, uh, online journals, about what they really found post the publication of his book. He says, the one thing that we found is that happiness in in this uh, data pool comes from only one thing, and, and that is connection, from friendship, from subjecting yourself to other living wounded, breathing, aspiring human beings. He says, uh, joy is connection. Happiness is love, full stop. The journey from immaturity to maturity, says Viant, is a sort of movement from narcissism to connection. And we need it. I got a cartoon here just... It uh, shows a little girl waking up in the night. She's coming into her parents' room. I don't think you can see the caption there. It, it, it says, I had a scary dream that I wasn't getting any attention. 
It's not monsters anymore, we fear. It's just being out of the limelight for a second. Well, when you and I put our wants under the wants of someone else, we begin to train our souls. We train ourselves for connection with God, to receive his grace. That's why Paul adds, in the reverence for Christ, out of reverence for Christ, to be subject to one another. He's writing in the context of a command in verse 18 to be filled with the Spirit. That's the real imperative here. And at the end of this household code in verse 10, he says, finally be strong in the Lord. Submit yourself to the Lord. Find his strength. Find the fullness of the Spirit, the power to be content in whatever circumstances you find yourself in because he loves you. Well, I got to close here, but let me, before I close, let me just take a minute here with you and ask you, invite you to think about your own life, where God might be connecting the dots for you. Because I believe that you're like me and that sometimes you don't get what you want, but there's still contentment available. You can still be happiness because it doesn't come from getting what you want. It comes from caring for others and it comes from realizing that God cares for you. Here's some diagnostic questions I found helpful for myself to to assess whether my ego or self has been bloated out of proportion to the real world. And here are eight things. I'm just going to rattle them off. Do I find myself overly focused on defending myself, maintaining control, satisfying my desires, being in the right, meeting my needs, getting my way, being understood, or my favorite, wallowing in self-pity? Catch me every week, if not every day, right there. And it's a good trigger to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me refocus here. What do you want? And are you sure you want it? Is it possible that there's more? Right now, what's hard in your life? What's eating away at your contentment? Is it stress, finances, grief, relationships, work? I wonder, could it be that you're feeling pain in your life actually because you have put your wants under the wants of somebody else. Sometimes we haven't, we haven't even recognized it. I mean, mom and dad struggle with the kids, or you, who, you're, if you're a manager or uh, an employee, or you're working for somebody, you're putting your wants underneath their wants, and it's hard, but it's hard because it's good, because you're loving someone, you're caring for someone, you're serving someone, you're submitting to someone. You just recognize that and celebrate and go, you know, this is the way it should be, actually. This is what I want. What would happen, though, if in the midst of what you're going through, you put your wants under God's wants and say, God, I don't think you put me into this situation, but what do you want to do in this situation? And what would it look like for me to make more space for your grace right here in this pain? Submission is not about limitation. It's about freedom, the freedom to love without restraint. I want you to think about who uniquely cares for you and who do you care for. Because in that, there's great freedom. Let me close with the words of Jürgen Moltmann, who makes the argument that God's happiness comes essentially from his submission. That God's submission is not an act of restraint, but an act of great freedom for God. And it makes him happy. And so we're invited to imitate and to participate. Here's what he says. The freedom of the triune God is neither simply the absence of interference nor self-control, but, and here's his key phrase, vulnerable love. 
The freedom of God is vulnerable love. His freedom, therefore, lies in the friendship which he offers other, um, he offers men and women, and through which he makes them his friends. His freedom is his vulnerable love, his openness, the encountering kindness through which he suffers with the human beings he loves and becomes their advocate, thereby throwing open their future to them. He's doing it for us. God demonstrates his eternal freedom through his suffering and his sacrifice, through his self-giving and his patience. Through his freedom, he keeps man, his image and his world and his creation free. Keeps them free and pays the price of their freedom. Through his freedom, he waits for man's love, for his compassion, for his own deliverance to his glory through man. Through his freedom, he doesn't only speak as Lord, but listens to men and women as their father. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so you listen now. And uh, we, we come before you confessing today that we so quickly come to the end of ourselves. And we know that life can curb the ego in all of its hardship. But we pray that we would not wait for life to right-size our sense of self, but would be, be able to apply the discipline of putting other people's wants, even, and most importantly, your wants above our own, that we might manifest the freedom that you manifest in your love. Help us to be a community that cares for one another. And just as we pray, Lord, would you bring to mind somebody that we can care for? And would you bring to our hearts the humility to allow ourselves to be cared for by somebody else? In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206 524-7301, extension 117.